Section 10 of Whom We Shall Welcome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Whom We Shall Welcome. Report of the President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization. Part 3. Chapter 5. National Origins System. Background. The immigration laws can limit the number of immigrants who may enter the United States each year without reliance upon national origins as the method of selecting such immigrants. The total number and the method of selection within that number are two separate issues. The quota, or ceiling, was introduced into our law in 1921. The concept of the national origins as a means of selection within a quota was introduced in the Immigration Act of 1924, which became effective on July 1, 1929. Each of these devices had its own unique objective. The national origins system has been justified as an attempt to guarantee that particular ethnic, racial, or nationality groups would have preference for entry into the United States on the assumption that they were more adaptable to American culture, the avowed purpose of the national origins system, therefore, was a qualitative one. It was concerned with the kind of persons coming into the United States rather than with their number. The test it applied was not the individual worth of an immigrant, but rather the presumed superiority of people from certain areas of the world. Place of birth, not individual capacity or actual cultural background, was the test. This concern with the caliber and quality of immigrants is naturally not new to our people. However, in most of our history, qualitative selection was designed to keep out the obviously undesirable individual and not to distinguish between peoples or races. There have been five historical stages in the development of our immigration policies. Colonial Period in colonial times, there were no national immigration policies, but only those of the individual colonies and of the mother country. These policies differed from colony to colony and accounted for major differences in regional development, as, for example, between the northern states, which early encouraged free labor from Europe, and the South, where a plantation economy encouraged the importation of slaves rather than of free workers. The general problem of the colonial period was that of peopling an empty land. The population of the colonies was small, and the continent was a vast, unexplored, and unsettled domain. Yet even in those early days, the antagonists of new immigration asserted that there was no room for more immigrants, and that the new arrivals were introducing an alien element and philosophy into the established communities. What may be new immigration to some is old immigration to others. For example, of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, eight were first-generation immigrants. The earliest colonists were predominantly British, although the Dutch, Swedes, French Huguenots, and some Spanish and Portuguese Jews were settled in certain areas. When the Scotch-Irish came, shortly after 1714, 
they aroused considerable uneasiness. They were followed by a migration of Germans, whose arrival was resented and feared by many. During these early years, arguments which seem strikingly familiar today were developed against immigration. There was a fear that the new immigrants' differences in speech, customs, and antecedents would disturb the cultural unity of the American people. Many objected to the caliber of the immigrants, particularly to those who were paupers and criminals. Other opposition grew out of religious prejudices. In general, however, immigration was encouraged during the colonial period, and some 750,000 people came to these shores from 1600 to 1770. The charters of Virginia, 1609, and Massachusetts, 1629, granted the right to abide and live not only to our loving subjects, but to any other strangers that will become our loving subjects. In the Declaration of Independence, the colonists declared that one of their chief grievances was that the government of the mother country had hindered the free flow of people into the colonies. The Founding Fathers continued the tradition of encouraging immigration. The Continental Congress, for example, invited the Hessian mercenaries of George III to leave his service and settle in the Americas. The Constitution states that Congress shall have the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, necessarily implying that newcomers would join the community. In 1783, George Washington declared, The bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respectable stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions, whom we shall welcome to a participation of all our rights and privileges, if by decency and propriety of conduct they appear to merit the enjoyment. The federal government used the principle of religious freedom to stimulate immigration as the guarantee of religious freedom in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 exemplifies. Alexander Hamilton, who was born in the British West Indies, wrote in his Report of Manufactures in 1792, A perfect equality of religious privileges will probably cause immigrants to flock from Europe to the United States. Tench Cox, Assistant Secretary of State in 1790, compiled notes for the information of the immigrant in which he listed all religious faiths in the United States, and definitely offered assurance of religious liberty as an inducement for immigration. Early 19th Century The second stage of our immigration history occurred approximately from 1800 to 1875. Immigrants were still welcome and sought for, but concern was beginning to be expressed for the qualitative aspects of immigration, as early as 1819, legislation was passed to improve the condition of immigrants on vessels bound for the United States. Although the policy of the nation was to encourage and welcome newcomers, efforts were made to bar paupers, criminals, and others clearly undesirable. The restrictionist sentiments of those who opposed free immigration were sharpened by the steady rise in the tide of immigration, this so-called Native American movement was first crystallized in the Native American Party launched about 1835. 
About 1850, this group became known as the Know-Nothings, and in later years it emerged as the American Protective Association. With the expansion of this faction's support and influence, there were recurrent manifestations of anti-alien feeling, some of which were accompanied by acts of violence against foreigners. Yet an 1841 message from President Tyler to Congress stated, We hold out to the peoples of other countries an invitation to come and settle among us as members of our rapidly growing family. The platform of the Republican Party, then called the Union Party, which Abraham Lincoln helped to write in 1864, stated, Foreign immigration should be fostered and encouraged by a liberal and just policy. Through World War I The third stage of immigration in America was in the period of 1875 to 1920. There was a sharp rise in the volume of immigration commencing in the 1880s, with immigrants coming from every country in Europe. This period saw the first general federal immigration statute, which barred convicts, lunatics, and persons likely to become a public charge. The Chinese Exclusion Act, which virtually shut the gates of entry to Chinese, the Contract Labor Act, designed to end wholesale importation of cheap labor, and other acts providing for the exclusion and deportation of aliens. In this period, Congress set up the Immigration Commission of 1907. This commission submitted a voluminous report in 1911, which discussed the desirability of limiting immigration and favored a literacy test as the most feasible single method of restricting undesirable immigration. Bills prescribing a literacy test for immigrants were passed at various times by Congress, but were vetoed by Presidents Cleveland, Taft, and Wilson. A fourth bill was vetoed by President Wilson, but his veto was overridden by Congress in enacting the Immigration Act of 1917. In addition to establishing the literacy requirement, the 1917 Act codified and extended previous restrictions. In addition, it established a so-called Asiatic Barred Zone, which was intended to bar Orientals. There were numerous other statutes which imposed supplementary restrictions on immigration. In general, all the legislation during this period concerned itself with improving the quality of individual immigrants and with shutting out Orientals. Since World War I The fourth major stage of our immigration history was the period from 1920 to 1950. The United States had emerged from the First World War anxious to return to normalcy, but now the United States, with some 106 million people, was filled up, and the prevailing doctrine of the open door to European migration was challenged from several directions. Politically, the nation was suffering a sharp revulsion against the war. Implicit in much of the thinking was the desire to forget the conflict and all it meant in terms of United States responsibilities in Europe and the world. The country turned its back on President Wilson, on the internationalists, and on the League of Nations. It indulged in reaction against foreign influences. 
Fear of the Bolshevist menace resulted in various forms of legislative and administrative suppressions. There were strong undercurrents of racial and religious prejudices, most dangerously expressed in the Ku Klux Klan, which ultimately gained millions of members. Ideologically, the more extreme rationale of this dramatic nationalist revival was the gospel of Nordic white supremacy. These views did not go unchallenged, but they had a marked influence on American attitudes toward immigration. Economically, there were more immediate causes for concern in the situation after World War I. The country entered a prosperous period in late 1915, mainly as a result of the war in Europe. The economy hesitated briefly in the first few months after the armistice, then boomed in earnest. The labor market was very tight and prices soared to a peak in mid-1920. Strikes became numerous as workers were affected by inflation. The collapse was swift. Wholesale prices dropped and manufacturing production fell. Unemployment mounted rapidly. Labor saw immigration as a potential threat to its standards of living. Socially, the crowding of immigrants in the cities and the slums had created serious concerns about housing, health, crime, and assimilation, problems undoubtedly accentuated by the large number of immigrants in the pre-war era. Many bills prohibiting or restricting immigration were introduced in the House and Senate of the United States Congress in the years from 1918 to 1921. Rumors were afloat that a flood of European immigrants, including many alleged undesirables, were getting ready to engulf the country. This reported prospective invasion was said to number millions. The sheer physical limitation of steamship facilities and of financial means, not to mention political and legal restrictions at home, seemed to play little part in reducing these rumors to a reasonable perspective of the actual conditions. The House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization reported favorably on December 6, 1920, a bill to prohibit all immigration, with very limited exemptions, for a period of two years. Finally, out of all this, came the 1921 Act, which limited the aliens of any nationality who might be admitted each year to 3% of that nationality resident in the United States in accordance with the 1910 census. This was the beginning of a legislative theory that people themselves were not as important as their ancestry. The 1921 Act was intended as emergency legislation for one year, but in due course was extended for three years. In the meantime, discussions continued on proposals which ultimately became the Immigration Act of 1924. This act not only established a ceiling quota or a maximum of 150,000, subject to certain minimum quotas, but also established the basic present pattern of the national origin system. It sought to establish a rigid racial and nationality formula for immigration. The curious part of this development was that the major controversy leading up to the national origin system was not on that system itself, but on the literacy test. 
As has already been stated, three presidents vetoed this test for admission. There is considerable mystery shrouding the development of the National Origins Plan. There was no extended debate in the Congress on it. It seemed to come in as an afterthought, without any major public discussion. Of the some 500 pages of the Congressional record devoted to debate on the Immigration Act of 1924, a total of approximately 14 pages were given over, in both the House and the Senate, to the consideration of the national origin system. Only a small minority of the senators and congressmen participated in this discussion. What started out as a debate on a literacy requirement developed into a move to end all immigration, became a temporary emergency measure, and ended up without much discussion as the national origin system. Present Law The fifth and current stage of American immigration dates from the discussions in 1950, culminating in the enactment of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, the 1952 Act retains, essentially, the national origins quota system which was introduced by the 1924 Act. However, it does add some important racist provisions, which in fact depart from the basic theory of the national origins system itself. The 1952 Act requires the establishment of separate sub-quotas for colonial dependencies in the Western Hemisphere, a provision which has generally been regarded as discriminatory against the colored people of the Caribbean area. The 1952 Act likewise defines a special geographic area known as the Asia-Pacific Triangle. The people of that area are given a special limited racial or oriental quota, regardless of the place of their birth, a departure from the origins principle. A discriminatory law. The United States is the only major English-speaking country in the world which has written discrimination into its national immigration laws. Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, the other great English-speaking countries, all of them immigrant-receiving countries, have neither a national origin system nor an inflexible quota limitation. The national origin system is also unique among the laws of English-speaking nations in the candor of its purpose. The legislative history, the statements by its sponsors, and the nature of its operation all point to the fact that the 1924 national origin system was designed and intended to discriminate on the basis of national origin, race, color, and, in effect, religion. It was designed to favor immigrants from northern and western Europe and to discriminate against those from southern and eastern Europe and against Orientals. Three groups were set up in the 1924 National Origins Law. One, the people of the Western Hemisphere, who were granted non-quota status and permitted to enter the United States without regard to any numerical limitation. Two, Orientals who were completely excluded, and three, Europeans and others from the rest of the world for whom some 154,000 quota numbers were allocated for distribution on the basis of place of birth. 
Some deny that the intent of the national origin system is to discriminate against particular nationalities and races. Perhaps the best answer is the view held by the senator who in 1924 proposed and succeeded in enacting the national origin system. Senator David A. Reed introduced the national origin system amendment on the floor of the Senate. His views are clearly stated in the following quotation from a colloquy occurring in hearings before the Senate committee in 1924. I think most of us are reconciled to the idea of discrimination. I think the American people want us to discriminate, and I don't think discrimination in itself is unfair. We have got to discriminate. The only question that I think worries the committee is whether the use of the 1890 census or the use of the method based on naturalization is the more plausible method of attaining that discrimination which is the object we are all seeking. The question we are tackling is which is the more plausible, the more reasonable, and the more defensible method of attaining that end. Practically all of us are agreed that that is an end that should be attained. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which conducted the study and submitted the bill, which is now the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, specifically considered this same question. That committee rejected proposals seeking to ameliorate the discriminatory provisions of the national origin system in the following terms. It is obvious, therefore, that the plan would disrupt the national origin system, since the quotas for Southern and Eastern Europe have a higher percentage of usage than the quotas for Northern and Western Europe, to distribute the unused quotas on the basis of the registered demand would shift more quota numbers to the countries of Southern and Eastern Europe. In its conclusions, the committee states, Without giving credence to any theory of Nordic superiority, the subcommittee believes that the adoption of the national origins formula was a rational and logical method of numerically restricting immigration in such a manner as to best preserve the sociological and cultural balance in the population of the United States. There is no doubt that it favored the peoples of the countries of Northern and Western Europe over those of Southern and Eastern Europe, but the subcommittee holds that the peoples who had made the greatest contribution to the development of this country were fully justified in determining that the country was no longer a field for further colonization, and henceforth further immigration would not only be restricted, but directed to admit immigrants considered to be more readily assimilable because of the similarity of their cultural background to those of the principal components of our population. Many of the considerations which lay behind the passage of the National Origins Quota Law have now become of little significance. The fact remains, however, that the National Origins System has established a rigid formula for allocating the overall number of quotas determined by Congress to be the maximum number to be admitted annually. Quotas thus established by law are definite and automatically resist the pressures of special groups. It is the rigidity of the formula, however, which also causes much concern, since it eliminates the selection of the immigrants on the basis of their potential worth to the United States. The 1952 Act intentionally perpetuates the national origin system, 
principally to preserve what the committee stated was the sociological and cultural balance in the population of the United States. This is merely a gentle way of saying that its purpose was to continue racial and national discrimination. That racial and national discrimination is the essence of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 is shown in several other ways. For the first time in American history, a sub-quota is created for immigrants born in colonies or dependent areas of the Western Hemisphere. This substantially reduces immigration of Negroes from the Caribbean area. For example, it shrinks immigration from Jamaica from an average of a thousand annually to a statutory maximum of a hundred annually. A second indication of the intentionally discriminatory character of the Act of 1952 is the fact that although the law repeals the Japanese Exclusion Act and sets up a minimum quota for Japanese, it establishes a racial quota under which Orientals are to be charged to the Asia-Pacific Triangle on the basis not of place of birth, as is true in all other cases, but of their own racial background. This is the national origin system. Until 1921, the United States followed its great tradition of regarding all peoples as being equal and of examining the intrinsic worth of immigrants in terms of their prospective individual contributions to the American scene. In 1921, in 1924, and even more emphatically in 1952, our immigration laws abandoned our traditional faith in the individual human being. End of section 10. Recording by Maria Casper.